here's a little taster uh, of the literary world of Graham Norton. Question number one, your reading habits, Graham, where and when do you read the most? Like most people, the summer. But then, unlike most people, my summer's very long. Yes, you have a summer off. I do. <laughs> I go, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I'll be back. Uh, when the clocks change, I'll be back. Uh, so I read an awful lot during the summer. And then during the year, you know what it's like. You Well, actually, you don't. You you have to read. <laughs> You're reading all, all the, the time. time. All the yes. time. Oh, joy. Way to ruin books. <laughs> Way to ruin books. Start a book podcast. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> But uh, happily, I still get to read for pleasure. Is there a book that you remember being read to you as a child? Isn't it all... Now, this is terrible. Social services can't come around now. <laughs> but uh, I really don't. I, you're not the first. You're not the first to say that. I do friendly. not remember my parents ever... I think they thought, lazy git, if you want to read a book, read it yourself. <laughs> you know, we're sending you to school. Uh, pick it up. So I only remember... Uh, reading uh, and the first things I read because my sister had them were Enid Blyton books and you know like so many people you know you've, you've enjoyed books you think you've enjoyed books more since but you know you never stayed up with a torch reading Jane Austen uh, you know so it it really her books were extraordinary uh, the, the way you just they were like a drug Enid Blyton books Would you go Famous Five or Secret Seven? Ooh uh, probably Secret Seven Okay Yeah John Simpson's book is Moscow Midnight and John has faced many fearsome interrogations <laughs> over the decades. Uh, but this is the one that he fears the most. This is the books of the Q&A. Uh, well, you may understand the answers, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> it's OK. I don't know if you read political memoirs or political books at all, John, but can you mention one that you've particularly enjoyed or hated? I don't know. Is there one that sticks in your memory? I don't read... Uh, well, I'll tell you what I do do. I I get the the books of people that I sort of kind of know a bit, like Tony Blair and stuff like that. I look myself up in the index. (laughs) Um, Actually, a better example is really Alistair Campbell, who said, you know, quite absolutely disgusting things about me um, and about my reporting from, particularly actually from... Um, Serbia in 1991 and uh, 1999, when the when NATO was bombing it for some reason, something to do, as far as I remember, something to do with Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton needing a bit of uh, of um, uh, distraction from his domestic problems. So, when off bomb Serbia, I was in Belgrade, the capital, and uh, had a hard time of it, and um, you know said some of the things that were fact. Like um, it wasn't working. The bombing wasn't doing any anything that that. But Tony Blair and his mates wanted it to. Anyway, I came in for a sort of Alistair Campbell drubbing. I think I came out of it just marginally ahead. And I, because all the all the journalists supported me as they always do with any journalist, no matter how bad who's in trouble. You know, I got all, loads of awards and <laughs> wonderful things for my incredible... I, actually, I knew what it was. They were, they were just saying, yeah, we're on your side against Alistair Campbell. So, I, so the answer is I don't read that kind of rubbish. I just read the index because none of it's true anyway. I mean, it is really pretty all self-serving tosh. Um... 
And the one I, I read, well, I'm not saying it's not self-serving tosh, it's a book by um, Saddam Hussein. It wasn't his memoirs, actually. It was a book about uh, some mystical king of Iraq in the distant past who falls in love with a gorgeous maiden and, uh, oh, I can't remember. I mean, it, 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 it's tosh, but it is, um, it's great fun to read. You've read a lot of tosh then. <laughs> I've, I've read, I read tosh. I mean, I quite like tosh, actually. Is there, is there a book you wish you'd written, be that for financial reasons, be it for professional jealousy, any <laughs> any reason? I, I love books about films, about movies, about things I love. And uh, a guy wrote, uh, wrote some of the wonderful films but died recently um, was that an American guy, uh, William Goldman. And he was fascinating about about movies and he wrote I love the book which is called Adventures in the Screen Trade that's right um, and he wrote All the President's Men you know Bush Cassidy the Sundance Kid but he's a fascinating man and I wish that I'd have been able to, to write like that about that life as well if I wanted to swap my life for anything it would have been to be in Hollywood in the time that he was there being able to do what he did which to sort of make wonderful films witty and everlasting movies that's what I'd love to really love to have done there's the um, the, the sequence that sticks in my mind is Robert Redford playing pool with Mike uh, it's Mike Nichols um, uh, who's about to make The Graduate and Robert Redford wants the part that Dustin Hoffman would end up missing yeah. and Mike Nichols says I'm going to tell you now why you're not getting that part <laughs> and he says you know that look a girl gives you when she refuses to go home with you and Robert Redford goes, no, that's the reason why you're not getting the part. Very good. That's very good. Hey, we're just swapping Hollywood anecdotes yeah. with Michael. Exactly, yeah. Precisely. Uh, um, so, yeah, I'd love to have been around at that time, Scott Fitzgerald and all those people that extraordinarily appeared in Hollywood. It was a kind of creative hub of the universe, wasn't it? As far as we're concerned, film lovers and that sort of You had Granada, Michael. You can't have Hollywood as well. <laughs> Hollywood or Granada, you're going to have to choose. Hello, 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 and thank you for downloading another fabulous, glittering, festive podcast from your friends at Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. I am Simon Mayo, and he's Books of the Year. I am Books of the Year. Uh, added tinsel with uh, today's episode, I, I feel. Although, obviously, people could be listening to this in the summer. So. They could be, and what I love, I, I love how we are now part of that sort of uh, universe where, you know, when they do Christmas specials on the telly, and you know that they were filmed in the middle of July, mm -hmm. and uh, and it was really hot outside, but they all had to wear jumpers. And and yet, here we are in, well, it's, it's sort of mid December recording this, yes. and it's going to go out as people are tucking in. Yeah, and it's going, to, but it's going to go out forever. Yes. So as people are catching up and realizing that they what they've been missing, uh, we can't re we don't really know what kind of things they're up. What to. has happened in the future? Tell us, tell us how it's going. That's right. Are we? Is the political system still all messed up? <laughs> has there been a meaningful vote? Yet? <laughs> yes. Well, oh, what do you think of that referendum? Well, vote? Yes, well that yes. was a surprise. There was there. There you go. I'm into a betting shop. Anyway, more on that later. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, here we go. So Robin Ince is uh, going to be our, uh, our guest today, if he turns up. Mm, yeah. If you didn't turn up, it's just going to be a limerick show. Yeah. So here we go, choosing that. some limericks. So this came about because we've got a 50 quid voucher yeah. from our friends at WH Smith. Yes, they are our friends, by the way. Yes, in spite of everything. <laughs> so thank you very much to them. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got 50 quid. So we're going to read these limericks. Thank you for everything that you sent in. And then we're going to decide who gets the 50 quid voucher. Yes. Mark Gorman. 
And why is it about your mum? It's about me? my because this is a combination of us doing those uh, adverts for Harry's razors, where we talk, started talking about my mum's face, and that's because you and I, whenever you say the word face, I oh, yeah, say your, your mum's face. face. Yes, exactly. So that's that. Teenage. Because we are <laughs> desperately clinging on. There yeah. once, this is Mark Gorman. There once was a Lancashire mum with love. She was well overcome. She wed a fine fellow, their life was quite mellow, and Matt was the final outcome. That's not the it's rather sweet, that's that. Right. Uh, okay. That's where the sweet ones end. Oh, Angie Cusky, because... Rhymes with Husky. Rhymes with Husky. Yeah. They sent in a couple. Yeah, go on. Matt's mum has the smoothest of faces, but she shaves in peculiar places. In Tesco it's fine, and Primark don't mind, but in Waitrose they confiscate razors. That's very good. That is very good. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, yeah. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. she also has... Yes. Matt's mum was a lady called Sheila who shaved with a potato peeler. A tip, she had said, in a book she had read. But surprisingly, no one believed her. Very good as well. Also, yes, yes. Uh, Helen Leadham says, Simon tried to address the disgrace that Matt's mum had no books at her place. Though Matt accepted the fact that this was what she lacked, he just sighed and retorted, your face, which is also very good. I should point out my mum has, having listened to the previous podcast, wants me to point out she does read books, she just gets them out from the library and then returns them. That's why there's none on her shelves. OK, thank so you for correcting I've, me. I've, I've corrected everything. Hi, Matt's mum. Yeah, sorry. Graham Whalen, uh, loving the podcast, and all of your guests. Mm. Really interesting. Here's my limerick. Matt's mum, Sheila, is ace with a razor, but some say she's never been braver than the time that she whipped the hair from her lip with the use of a Jedi lightsaber. Oh, I like that one as well. I think that's very good. I don't think that's as good. Not as good as Angie Rhymes with Cusky and Waitrose. But mm. I, I, that is the front runner, I'd say. Why don't we get Robin Ince to decide... Robin Ince. ...which of the two Well, when he turns best. up, that would be nice. There he is. Oh, is he there? He, oh, lovely. Thanks for coming he, in, Robin. If you could come on in. Come on in. Through. So, basically, I agree with you that mm-hmm. those two are very good and they're probably the, it's probably the best. So, Angie Cusky is the winner. Yes. So, it doesn't really matter which one we like the most. No, it doesn't most. really, no. But let's bring, let's bring Robin in. And, uh, He's turned up. Yes, he has, as it turns Hello. out. Yes. Sorry, Hi. I couldn't get Hi. on the previous train. I don't live in London. They're so full. How are you? <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, so, is the tea arriving momentarily? These part... glasses are too flat, aren't they? What a hipster place we're in. <laughs> what are we doing here? Well, we booked it for you because we know the kind of guy yeah. you are, obviously. So we want you to decide on the winning limerick. Okay, the... they're both from the same woman, so she's going to win the 50 quid book right. writer anyway. I like the first one. Yes, I agree. I'm going to go with yeah, that. Yeah, There's yeah, lovely yeah, images, yeah. lots yes, of images. Yeah. yeah. See, I like the second one. With oh, the really? Peeler. Oh, really? Okay. And I've got three votes. <laughs> and you've got... <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, like that's the UN. fine. Okay, yeah, that's right, yeah. I'm on the Security Council and <laughs> I'm Russia <laughs> and you're uh, uh, Zimbabwe. So Let me just check how you've manipulated my Facebook. Do you know what? Now I realise that maybe you were right. The second one is better. There you go. Very good and very topical. Anyway, Angie Kusky... Uh, I think, wins, yes. therefore. So she wins the book voucher. And we've still got a Books of the Year sweatshirt and T-shirt, which we should give to the, a runner-up. Yes. Uh, uh, my runner-up would be... Helen Leadham, maybe? Yeah, or... Helen Leadham, yes, yes. That's, that, that would be my favourite, yeah. Yeah, Helen Leadham. Anyway, happy Christmas to you. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. kind of. I've kind of missed it almost. Um, what you had with this book, presumably, Marcus, is a whole bunch of expectation, which you wouldn't have had for the book thief by your own admission you said mm-hmm. you thought it was going to mm. uh, bomb 16 million copies later or whatever the latest figure is you know that that's not true but d- did you feel any of that was that one of the reasons why this took so long I think yes and no more more so than i thought 
at first you just think, no, nah, that doesn't, it's not really bothering me. But then you, and because you do have to let go, like what I, I think what, what I love when you're writing a book is that you're trying to look after the reader a lot. And it'll be interesting what you think about this too, that you're looking after and you're trying to keep them interested and trying to do everything. And there's a point where you, you cross a line and then you say, right, now you've got to come with me. And, uh, and then suddenly what you're doing then is you're writing for the characters in the book. And, uh, and I felt very much that way, particularly through, um, you know, in the late, what allowed me to get it written was when I was writing for that boy, for that family, and even for some of the minor characters like Carrie, Clay's best friend and uh, the apprentice jockey, I was writing for them. And, uh, and that's kind of what got me through. Yes, I don't think I am quite the same as you, actually. But then I think our books are very, very different and couldn't be more different. I'm writing f- not for the characters, although I'm writing for one of them because that character is me. Uh, so so it, that makes it different for a start. I think I'm always writing for my readers, and I think that I put narrative and construction and, and surprise and adventure even before, slightly before character. Um, you know, Hawthorne is an interesting character whom I'm unpeeling book by book but he doesn't tell me what he does to me what to do in the book but actually in real life I'm telling him have, have are either of you been so shallow as to use a book to try to impress someone well I mean our own surely <laughs> you know, what do you what do you do for a living you know, I did well. I, I did do a tinder thing recently where somebody asked me what I did and I said as a writer and they said uh, would I know anything and I decided what the hell I thought you know I said oh you might know the boy in the striped pyjamas and we were on a date within 48 hours so <laughs> And did, was it effective? Was it good? Uh, no, it didn't. Okay. So, oh, it's terrible. Even so, with the book? Sorry? Oh, even with the book? Even with the book, oh, yeah. Oh, dear. Well, it went really badly. You know, the worst line that anybody can ever say to you on a date, I think, is, um, you know, when I was in school, you came in to give a talk to us about books. Oh. And you go, I should, I, I should not be here. I should, I should go home right now. Uh, that's a good so, one. That actually happened to me on that date. So. Oh. Because a lot of famous people in this book, obviously, because you interact with lots of famous people because they're part of your circle. Does anything have to be checked with them? Is it OK if I mention this story? Well, the book's been out for a while now. This is the paperback version. And uh, if there was anybody to apologise for, it would have been in the first rounds of people receiving the book. It would seem that with this book, I, I don't have a lot to apologise for. And, you know, the people that were pulled up and I've been mean about, I think, deserved it. Um, One other incident, then, I think you might remember this, but I thought it was a very moving moment, is after a gig that you did at the O2 and your father is there and there's a conversation that happens about your control of an audience and he, because he was an entertainer himself, wasn't he? And he marvels, he said, he says, I, I would go on stage and I'd have a few hundred people there and I'd, you know, and I'd work the room and I can do that. But he said, you come on the stage. My son goes on the stage and he's got 40,000 people there and he has them from the word go. And you can tell there's a sense of kind of wonder and marvel there. Yeah, my dad's my hero. I, I, I grew up watching him work. And uh, my dad, was it Art Knox on New Faces? I think it was New Faces. He won his uh, round on New Faces in 1974 and became the Pete Conway comedian on the t- from the television. And I grew up marvelling at him 
and watching his ability to pe put people in the palm of his hand and keep them there all evening. And I, I knew that that was the path that I wanted to take. I wanted to be my dad. I wanted to be like my dad. And if he'd had the opportunity to stand in front of 40,000, 60,000, 70,000 people, he would have done and still does the, the same thing. So it's high praise indeed from my hero. Uh, one of the things that, that I want to do uh, in this books podcast is not just have people who've written non-fiction, but people who've written fiction. Uh, and also saying to everyone else, if you see any extraordinary writing, which has been done by, you know, if you're a parent, if your kids write something that you think is amazing, send it into us. If you're a teacher and you see some outstanding work, send it into us because we want to, we want to mention that. And we got a story uh, which was sent in and I wanted to read it to you. So this is, this is uh, a story from a 10-year-old boy called Charlie Skinner. All right. So this came into our uh, email. It's just a short story. You're not going to be here like for okay. another hour while I read a story. <laughs> just a short story written by a 10 year old kid. And when I read this, and when Matt read this, I just think this is, this is amazing. The story of Callum and the Black Balloon. Callum Jenkins is a typical 10 year old, curious, friendly, full of adventure. And he giggles at rude words like boobies and bum. But Callum has a secret. His invisible black balloon. Now, most balloons are fun, but not the black kind. Callum's balloon is filled with worry and anxiety, and it floats over his head like his own personal storm cloud. Football in PE, Callum frets about tripping over his feet and scoring an own goal. The Christmas carol concert, what if he forgets the words or sings out of tune? Whatever you do, don't mention his impending doom, a.k.a. sats, or the balloon might just go pop. Even though it's invisible, Callum tries hard to hide his balloon from others. What if his friends find out about it? That's another worry. He's sure none of them have a black balloon. Their balloons are red and blue and green. And in the case of Jacob Jones, his best friend, he's always smiling and doesn't have a care in the world, rainbow coloured. One day, Mum says, Dad's not feeling well today. I'll take you to school. What's wrong with him? Callum hops from foot to foot, tugging at the string of his balloon, hopeful mum won't notice it rearing up over his shoulder like the bogeyman. Bogeyman, that's funny. Is he sick? Does he have a temperature? The flu? He doesn't dare name the thing that scares him most, the thing he saw an advert for last night, the thing where the dad had no hair. No, mum replies, filling Callum's lunchbox. He just doesn't feel very well, that's all. It's hard to explain. Go and say goodbye. Callum's balloon is a gigantic dark zeppelin as he pushes open the bedroom door. He flings himself on his father's chest. Hey, champ! Dad sits up in bed. And that's when Callum sees it. A shadow darkening Dad's face. He works himself up to ask his own monolithic balloon now threatening to engulf the whole world. Dad, do you have a black balloon too? His eyes prickle, hot and itchy. Dad looks at Callum in astonished realisation. Yes, Cal, yeah, I do, but it makes me feel a little bit better knowing that I can talk to you about it. Me too, Dad, me too. Callum smiles as they hug, and for the first time he imagines his balloon deflating a little, a fart noise escaping from the end. He giggles. By the time Callum and Mum get to school, the balloon doesn't feel like it's going to burst anymore. It's still there, but now it's drifting by his side like a weird dog on a lead. He notices that lots of people are carrying their own black balloons, intermingled with multicoloured ones. Even Mum admits to having one sometimes. They'll be OK, he grins, as he looks at Mum, if they just tell someone. Wow. Charlie Skinner, age 10. Thank you very much, Steve, for sending that in. Yeah. I, just, I read that and I thought, 
there's a, that's that's a st- that's ten. I was just trying to think. Amazing. Yeah. Writing that when you're ten years old. That's incredible writing. Uh, deeply moving. Uh, I thought, when does he start talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I. He actually doesn't refer to you at, uh, at all. Oh, okay. I, I, I wasn't in. Elton John. I wasn't no. in that story at all. No, you're not wrong in- number. <laughs> No, uh, it, it, all no. joking, all joking aside, it was incredibly moving, and I, you know, I, I, I closed my eyes while you were reading that, and I was um, almost reduced to a tear. It's um, incredible and powerful, and uh, I think a very promising uh, career yeah. beckons for that young man. Yeah, it's Simon Mayer's books of the year. Ben McIntyre's The Spy and the Traitor. Uh, is up for discussion this week. The section that you uh, read out uh, for us a few moments ago, which is at the opening of the book, is when he realises that he is under suspicion and it's sort of the end, the beginning of the end game and the extraordinary story that you tell of the cheese and onion crisps. How do, how, how, how do they help him escape? Well, this is the other bizarre part of the story. So so to, to, to cut to the chase, they, they, they managed brilliantly to throw off the KGB surveillance that was following them, these two MI6 cars. They managed to reach the lay-by. They had about 80 seconds to extract Oleg from the undergrowth, wrap him in a special heat-reflective blanket that would stop the, the infrared cameras at the border from picking him up, give him some tranquilizer pills, throw him back in the boot with some water, slam the boot shut. That took 80 seconds. And as you were mentioning earlier, the thing about, you know, Soviet, you know, being unwilling to report bad news. Well, of course, the KGB surveillance had passed them while they were hidden in the lay-by. And as they drove up the road, they saw the, the, the surveillance cars ahead of them. And that was a critical moment. Were the KGB going to report that they'd lost the people they were following for 80 seconds? They didn't. Had they done so, the whole of history would have been different. But as they were going through the, the checkpoint, they went through. there were three checkpoints at the Finnish border. They got through the first one OK. At the second one, they were parked at the barrier when the Soviet sniffer dogs began to go round the boot of the car and evidently they had, they had detected that there was something in there. So one of the wives of the MI6 officers brilliantly took out a packet of cheese and onion crisps, which, as everybody knows, are extremely pungent things, and began to feed them to the dogs to try and put them off the scent, which kind of worked for a little bit, but the dogs hadn't quite given up. And then the other... Um, the other wife of the other MI6 oh, yes. officer yeah. <laughs> realised that something was going to have to be done. And in a, a brilliant, impromptu move, she took her little baby out of the back seat of the car who, and the baby had obligingly just filled her nappy. She changed her on the boot of the car and dropped the dirty nappy on one of the dogs or very near one of the dogs, which immediately went, oh, God, you know, and the smell of the dirty nappy disguised what was in the boot and the dog's backed away and disappeared. So um, that's sort of, if you like, the, the dirty nappy that changed the course of the Cold War. Absolutely. And I, I, that whole chapter reads absolutely like a thriller. And there are so many elements there that you think, you could not make this up. Cheese and onion crisps, filled babies, nappies, Safeway bags and, and chocolate bars. Was there a point when you were researching this where you were thinking, oh my goodness, this is gold? Because I, I'm not just the escape. The, there are other aspects of this story, like the Queen Mother and the video recorder, where you go, oh my, how lucky have I been? Well, I felt incredibly lucky. I also at moments thought, this can't be true. Mm. This this must be made up. This reads like fiction. But one of the lucky things I had with the book was that I was able to interview all the MI6 officers who were involved in the case, every single one. I don't think I missed a single one. And their stories are absolutely identical. That you know, this is—it's not just—it's not part of MI6 myth. This, this is this is remembered history. So yes, I mean, the other thing is that 
you know, if it reads very dramatically, it is nonetheless a very dramatic game, this. I mean, and it does come down to sort of human error, individual character. Only in spy fiction does spying work perfectly. It doesn't work that way. It, it almost always goes wrong. And there are moments in this when it goes dramatically wrong. And it's almost in the end down to sort of human ingenuity, as you say, a packet of crisps and a dirty nappy. And Oleg now, you've met him, you've, you've obviously interviewed him, and he's living in a sort of nondescript suburban suburban house. I'm, I'm struck by one thing you do say about him, is that because his family did come back over with him after he'd escaped, but he was then estranged from them, and you, he strikes you as a very lonely man now. Well, one of the terrible decisions that, that he had to make in Moscow before activating his escape was that he had to decide whether he would take his wife and two very young daughters with him. And that's kind of the emotional crux of the story because it was a really long night of the soul. MI6 was ready to take them all four of them out. I mean, it had provision to do so. Oleg had to decide whether it would work. And, and he still talks about this in a very sort of poignant way he didn't know really whether... He, I mean, his wife had absolutely no idea that he was a double agent. She herself was the daughter of two KGB officers. She was very, very KGB. She was very yeah. KGB. And I think part of him, and he says this, you know, didn't know whether he could fully trust her. He probably could have done. But anyway, so he made the run, and it took another six years before his family were, were able to come out. And as you say, that the marriage was completely destroyed, really, by that point. Anyway, so Oleg lives in a safe house um, where he's been now for nearly 30 years. Um, it is a sort of captivity. I mean, he he, he is, lives under a different name. His neighbours have no idea who he is. Um, you know, he, he can come and go, but not alone, um, particularly after what happened in Salisbury recently. He is under very, very tight uh, security these days. So there is a price. I mean, he Oleg paid a huge price for what he did and he's 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 a remarkable man in in lots and lots of ways and but he is also a very lonely man but he's also i think the bravest person i've ever met and as as you hint ben it's impossible to read this without the shripal story echoing all the way through it does he fear for his life no i you know i don't think he does because i think he is he is he's in his 80th year now he's an extraordinarily brave man he's very insouciant about that sort of thing he's been under a death threat Ever since he came to Britain, he was tried in absentia and sentenced to death. Uh, that execution order is still in force. He is, I guess, you know, the most prominent um, defector from the KGB there's ever been. So he, he knows how to live with this. It's This is not a new experience for him. And, you know, I think he thinks that that is part of the game. Does he fear Putin? No. I mean, I think, no, I don't think he does. I don't think, I, I think Putin would, would be very foolish to attempt to do anything uh, to Oleg Gordievsky. He would be very hard to get to. And will you continue this friendship, do you think? Will you keep on dropping in and being a mate? Yes, uh, dropping in is a, is, a, is a nice way to describe something that is actually a great deal more complicated than just dropping yes. in. You don't really turn up at Oleg's front door and knock on it. Um, yes, I've become very close to Oleg over the years. I mean, I think I totted them up the other day. I think I've got something like 115 hours of recorded interviews. Um, and I was seeing him about once a month um, at one point. And he, he's extraordinary because even now, I mean, he's, he is elderly now, but his powers of recall are quite extraordinary. I mean, he could tell you exactly what it smelt like in a particular cafe in 1963. And that, for a non-fiction writer, is absolute gold dust. And having a photographic memory, if you're a spy, that's that pretty useful. Pretty yeah. damn... Well, of course, you can train yourself up for that. That was one of the things they taught at School 101, the Red Banner Institute outside Moscow. 
Okay, well, we're delighted to welcome Heather Morris into our Books of the Year podcast studio. Hello, Heather. It's very nice to meet you. Kia ora. Sorry? That's New Zealand for hello. Is it? Or Maori. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. Well, we're, we're, so we're learning something. Well, it's very good. You must be head-spinningly excited uh, off on a world tour and, you know, a best-selling book. And I think it's just wonderful because it's your first book and everyone will be thinking, wow, I could write a best-selling book. Why not? Uh, Give it a go. Before we get into the into the pages... Uh, Heather, just explain how you came to write this story, because that's an extraordinary tale too. Absolutely. I was this lucky person who said yes to having a cup of coffee with a friend one day, and she just casually mentioned to me mid-sentence, oh, by the way, I have a friend whose mother has just died, and his father has asked their son to find someone he can tell a story to, and that person can't be Jewish. She knew I wasn't Jewish. She was, because she was a friend of uh, Lali's son. She said, do you want to meet him? I said, well, what's he got to talk about? And she said, I have no idea. And I said, OK, then we'll set it up. And a week later, I knocked on his door. So this is Lully Sokolov. Yes. Whose original name is Ludwig Eisenberg. Correct. Who'd been married to Gita. He is the tattooist, of course, uh, uh, of the of the story. Um, what, but from everything that you're saying, Heather, he had never told anyone. This story says so his wife has passed. He's an mm-hmm. old man. He's he's afraid he's not going to last, which is why he wants to tell the story and Absolutely. get you to tell the story quickly. Why had he not told the story before? It's a funny situation that everybody I met in the Jewish community in Melbourne, they all knew who he was. Uh, they all knew. Lali the Tatavera. All the, the ladies all loved him and he loved them. But he and Gita had made a pact not to talk about it. Gita never wanted to talk about it ever except to him. So she didn't even talk with their friends and they specifically never ever spoke to their son about their time there. Poor bugger had to learn about his parents by reading my book. But when she died, Lali decided he wanted the world to know about this girl who he had fallen in love with and had loved for six decades. And for him, that was the important part of talking to me. I had to point out to him that you are a significant person in the Holocaust history. To him, it was, I did what I had to do. But then I started getting exactly what it was he had to do. And, you know, you've only got about 20% of what I know in that book. In the drama, which you have reconstructed here, Heather, um, there are some names that will jump out uh, mm. at some readers because we have read about them before. And I should say, when I was at... When I was at university, I did a dissertation on Nazi treatment of the Jews, 1933 to 1945. And as such, I read the diaries of Rudolf Hoss. Yes. This, I think that pronunciation is right. He's the commandant of Auschwitz. Chilling, aren't they? Absolutely terrifying because he's so boring and mundane and loves his family and loves his mm. pets. And here is the man responsible for the horror, which mm. part of which you've described here the rest we know and we we fill in the blanks but when he walks into the story very early on I sort of inwardly sort of gasped a little because he was a man who I'd read so much about who sort of is part of the explanation as to how this this happened that a man so ordinary could be responsible for such evil. Yeah um, Lully I recall him saying that he was probably the only senior SS person who actually introduced himself at no other time to Schwarzhuber or Hilstick, the other commandants in, in the camps, you know, proclaim to the prisoners, you know, I am Commandant Schwarzhuber, 
but just marched out that day and proudly stood there and uh, and announced who he was. But, of course, that meant nothing to Lully at the time. And he said that the thing that struck him was how plain his uniform was in relationship to the other SS, who Lully actually admired their uniforms the minute he arrived there. Oh, I like the cut of that cloth, because he was all about looking good. Quite a dandy then, really, was he? He was an absolute playboy. He made no bones about that. Love him and leave him kind of character. Absolutely. And so to have this man, he said, who stood there in a very plain beige shirt and trousers and proclaim who he was, and he said he didn't need to be wearing the stars and the stripes and the double lightning bolts for you to feel the chill of the man. I wondered if you ever thought to yourself, even though you had this astonishing story to tell, spending time in Auschwitz, as I am writing this story, is is horrific. And I, I really wish I was writing another story. Yes and no. Um, there was a point when his unburdening and, and telling me of the tr- really horrible things he'd seen, as I, I said, of which you've got a small percentage of, when that... Um, transference took place between him and I and that was when the guilt and the pain and the trauma that he had witnessed and been part of actually left him and landed on me and it took a little while for me to to realise what was going on in fact it took a colleague to point it out as I suddenly decided I didn't want to go there anymore I didn't want to hear anymore I, I just overloaded and uh, thankfully, a, a wise colleague smacked me around the head and went, oh, it's just transference, Heather, find a way to deal with it and get on with it. Because she was quite right. I had no right to anyway try and own his pain and his guilt for being a survivor and his trauma. That wasn't mine. How dare I even think that I could? I, I do want to ask you about survival because this is something that comes up. Um, I think Lully ad- addresses this in the book as well, but it's certainly a theme that I that dominated my mind after I'd finished reading the book. The the idea of survival is a form of heroism. Mm. There were people who survived and sometimes had to do things that we in regular society would probably look down on, would frown upon, <clears throat> but they were doing it to survive, and that yes. was a form of heroism. Look, it's a form of heroism, and uh, Lully also described it as a form of resistance. These buggers want to kill us all. What's the worst thing we can do to them? We can stay alive. So he even interpreted it that way. The, you've done the studies how little resistance, given the sheer numbers of people in the camp versus the number of SS that were there, and the resistance was not that huge. There were a couple of um, attempts at it. And so to him, you resist by staying alive. Hi, my name is Kay Adams. And to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.